the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Merry Christmas, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we continue our study verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the Bible with Senior Pastor Will Ramirez. Today we take a two-week break from our normal study for a special Christmas series. Pastor Will begins with a Christmas message entitled, What Christmas Meant to Zacharias, beginning in Luke chapter 1, verse 57. As we've been looking at our reliable faith through the book of Luke, we've found ourselves right in the middle of the Christmas story at the right time. And you know, Christmas means a lot of things to different people. But the first part of that word, Christmas, Christ, is important to us because Christmas is a day we celebrate that God became a man to save us from our sins. I mean, there are many other things you may think of, things that are your personal traditions, things that are special to you and your family or you and your neighborhood, and that's wonderful, that's fine. But while this season is special to us for that reason, I personally have always been fascinated by how this season was special for the people who lived it. What was it like for Mary? What was it like for Joseph? What was it like for Anna? And what was it like for Simeon? And now, of course, we're going to see today Zacharias. And so as we examine what Christmas meant to him, to Zacharias, may give us something to consider as we have our own celebrations. So chapter one of Luke, and we'll begin in verse 57. Mary has been told by the angel Gabriel that she's gonna give birth to the Messiah. She's so excited as she goes and she tells her cousin or relative Elizabeth, and then God gives supernatural revelation to Elizabeth that Mary's gonna carry the Messiah. And so Now that's done. They've had that time where they've glorified the Lord. Mary has now gone home. Elizabeth has had her baby. And we find here in verse 57 what happens next. It says, Now Elizabeth's full time came that she should be delivered, and she brought forth a son. That's John the Baptist. Although the Baptist was not his title at the beginning. And her neighbors and her cousins heard how the Lord had showed great mercy upon her, and they rejoiced with her. You know, I love that because this was a moment that Elizabeth had been waiting for for many, many years. And here she is in her older age, and everyone is there just celebrating together with her. What an amazing thing that God has done. And you know, it's interesting because Christmas can be a time where envy and jealousy creeps up. You kind of see what somebody else got for Christmas, or they post on Facebook, and like, look what my hubby got me. And you're like, well, my hubby got me pots and pans. And you can very easily become jealous or envious or whatever. And instead of rejoicing with others, we kind of get snarky with them. And do you do that? Or do we, do we think they don't deserve those things, and therefore we don't rejoice with them? You know, it's funny, me and Bev, when we got married, I think it was... It was only when I I got my Corolla that I have now. It's one of the first times we had a car that was made in the same decade that we were living in. 
we just always had older cars. And so I would always get a little bitter when the commercials would come on in between the football games. And, you know, you'd see the guy peer out and there'd be a bow over a Lexus or something like that. And I think, well, I don't want a Lexus. I just want a car that has four tires at work. And I would not rejoice with those people. Do we do that? You know, I know it's a silly example, but do we do that sometimes during Christmas? And do we rejoice with those who rejoice? Romans chapter 12, verse 15 tells us to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep. And there'll be those who are hurting during this time. And you can't just ignore them because this is, well, I'm, I'm not letting you ruin my Christmas. Nor can you ruin it on the other side. Let's rejoice with those who rejoice. Now, Jewish families didn't name their child until the eighth day the day of their circumcision. And so verse 59, we see here, it came to pass that on the eighth day, they came to circumcise John, the child, and they called him Zacharias after the name of his father. Now, this would be a huge day for Zacharias and Elizabeth because they'd have relatives and friends present to celebrate the child's naming and circumcision. And this would be a big moment for Zacharias in particular because he'd be there and they would turn to him as they're about to do the deed and they would say, what's the boy's name? And it would be the time and he would proudly say his name is, you know, whatever. And in this moment, of course, Zacharias can't talk, remember? Nine months ago, his lips became sealed because he asked the Lord for a sign. And so, you know, he can't talk. So they figure, oh, I'm sure it's their only son. They're going to name him Zacharias. And so the phrase they're called actually means they attempted to name him Zacharias. They attempted to make it official. But it says his mother answered and said, "Uh uh-uh, Charlie, you know. She said, not so. And that's a very light way of saying it. She interrupted the whole event and said, no, no, you are not calling him Zacharias. His name is John. Now, they didn't really trust that. It says they said under, well, there is none of your kindred that is called by this name. And there's a few reasons for that. Number one, gals, that was not your moment. That was the dad's moment, the circumcision. So the ladies usually didn't participate in the actual ceremony. So you know, they didn't tend to give them a voice in that moment. But secondly, it didn't match. There's nobody in the family named John. And the idea was is that when you had a child, you would have a son in particular, they would be named to carry on the family name. You might get creative later on with children. You know, this one came out and he was all red, and so you named him Red. But you wouldn't do that with that firstborn. You would name them in a way that they could carry on the family name. And yet, it says, they asked for a writing. They made signs to his father how he would have him called, verse 63. And he asked for a writing table, King James says. It just means a, a tablet with wax on it. And he wrote saying, no, his name's John. And they marveled all. Now, they didn't make signs to him or gesture to him because he was deaf. He only couldn't speak. But they did it because that's how he'd been communicating with everybody for the last nine months because he couldn't speak. But they're shocked even when he says his name's going to be that. Now, the reason they're shocked is because it's supposed to carry on the family name. But is that John's role to carry on his family's name? John's role would not be to carry on the family's name. That wasn't his destiny. His role, his life had one purpose— and it was to prepare the way for the Messiah, right? John's, he's not going to have a family. He's not going to get married. He's not going to have a family. He's not going to invest into property and to have someone to pass it on to. John's focus entirely is going to be to prepare the people for their Messiah. Well, they're all marveling about this and going, John, interesting name. No one named John. Why, who's going to carry on the family name? As all their pond, ponderings are going on, why they're naming, uh, they're naming their son John, the Lord opens Zacharias' mouth so he can explain. Verse 64, and his mouth was opened immediately and his tongue loosed and he spoke and he praised God. And fear came on all that dwelt round about 
them and all these sayings were noised abroad throughout all the hill country of Judea. You know, after Zacharias confirms his name and everyone's wondering, the Lord opens his mouth. And I love the fact that the first thing out of his mouth, it says he praised God. He had an opportunity when the the angel came to him the first time, when Gabriel said to him, Zacharias, your prayers have been answered. You're going to have a son. He had an opportunity then to praise God, but what did he do? What what shines so I know that this is going to happen, man? I'm, I'm however many years old and my wife's how many years old. This is impossible. He had an opportunity then to praise the Lord. So he's had nine months to think of how he's going to make this up. <laughs> he's going to fix it. And in that moment when his mouth is loosed, the first thing he does is he blesses the Lord. And you know, that's a great example for us to learn from his lesson because what are our first words when God is merciful to you and me? Do we bless him? Do we give him the glory that's his due? Now, what did Zechariah say? Well, Luke actually doesn't tell us yet. He tells us what the reaction to what he said was first. It says, and fear or reverence came upon all them that dwelt round about them. So everybody, all the neighbors, everybody lived nearby. They were blown away by what he said. And it says, and all these sayings were noised abroad. In other words, it spread beyond just their neighbors. It spread all the way throughout. It says, all the hill country of Judea. And all they that heard those things, so as news is spreading farther and farther, it says, they laid them up in their hearts saying, what manner of child shall this be? I mean, this is, this is a special kid. He's miraculous birth. You know, then, then miraculous in a negative way where he, his dad can't speak for nine months. And then he can speak again. And when he does speak, what happens? He tells us something pretty amazing. And so the chatter begins. What manner of child shall this be? And the hand of the Lord was with him, John the Baptist, that is. John's life, interestingly enough, before he ever preached a sermon, was already having an impact. Everyone talked. Could this boy really be the forerunner of the Messiah? What is God doing? Could our prayers finally be answered? Now, why were they thinking that? Well, because of what Zach said, and it says here the hand of the Lord was upon him. There was something special about this boy. I've got four kids, and they're all incredibly special. And I see it every day. And every once in a while, you might have the privilege of seeing that and going, oh, wow, that's really cool. You have a neat kid. But you know, there was something about John where the hand of the Lord was upon him that everybody could tell right away. There's something special about this kid. Now, in addition to Zacharias's words, that's where the things started to put together. Now, Luke, because he's just told us that everybody's talking about it, he now takes us back in time to that moment when Zacharias spoke, when his mouth was loosed. And that's where we find ourselves for the rest of the chapter. So verse 67 Here we're going to find out what Christmas meant to Zacharias, and it's four things. It says here, And his father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Ghost, and he prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. The word blessed, it means praises be to the Lord God of Israel. Webster's defines praises as to express warm approval or admiration of something or someone. As I was helping my kids get dressed this morning, and I have a little girl, and she came out dressed in her Christmas dress, and then my sons came out, and they were all handsome, you know. And I, I, I praised them. I told them, you look beautiful, you know, sweetie. You know, you look like a little man, you know, to, to my little boy. You know, I said, you look like a little man. I, I praised them. I told them how, how special they were. And this is what Zacharias is doing with the Lord here. He's giving God the honor that he's due. See, the first thing that Christmas meant to Zacharias was that God was awesome, and he was worthy to be told so. He was worthy to be told so. And you know what? As you have your celebrations for Christmas this year and your traditions, it might be a good idea to consider the fact that God is awesome and he's worthy to be told so. Amen? 
I mean, this is a time where we should make sure we do that. You know, we, we had the whole band up here today, and, and they were rocking it out. And, and the reason why is because this is a happy day. And I recognize that there are other Christians that may be a little bit more solemn or, you know, whatever, and that's perfectly fine. But this is a day for joy and a day to express it. It's interesting, when I was over in Israel, they have their Sabbath celebration, and I didn't know what to expect. I almost thought it would kind of be very formal, very quiet, very, you know, everyone would, you know, nobody's doing anything because there's no work being done, whatever. And I remember I came out of my hotel room, and people are wearing big old hats, and they've got balloons everywhere, and they're having parties and dancing, and it was just, it was the funniest thing ever. I thought, wow, they really throw a party. And I remember our our tour guide said, our Sabbath is our favorite holiday of the year. And I said, why? He said, because we celebrate it 52 times a year. And they celebrate it every week. And, you know, there was no solemnity in that moment. Now, they had their solemn times, Yom Kippur, other times. And so there is that time. But that was a celebration. And this is a celebration today. We're going to sing songs that are exciting. We're going to tell the Lord that he's awesome and and give him the praise that he's due. We're going to smile because there's a lot to smile about. Even if nothing is going right in your life right now, the reality is is that Christ came for you and he died for your sins. God loves you. Even if nobody else does, God loves you. And there's a reason to be joy-filled today. So the first thing Christmas meant to Zacharias was that God was awesome and he's worthy to be told so. And that's something we should take into consideration in our celebrations. Now, why is God awesome? Well, this is the second thing that Christmas meant to Zacharias. He's awesome because God sent Jesus to rescue us from our sins. He says here at the end of the verse, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets, which have been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all that hate us. You know, God sent Jesus to rescue us from our sins. That's something we must consider during this time. You know, how did God do that? Well, first off, by entering our world. It says, for he has visited and redeemed his people. God was not the visitor you don't want during Christmas, you know. He was the visitor you do want during Christmas because he redeemed his people. The word they redeem means to purchase one's freedom from slavery. God hadn't abandoned his people. Even though in many ways they had abandoned him over their history, he had not abandoned them. And even better than not abandoning them, he was going to personally rescue them. How? By sending his Messiah, verse 69. And he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, from the family of his servant David. The word horn there is always a symbol in the Bible of mighty power. God has raised up a mighty power of salvation, something that could accomplish salvation for us that we could not do for ourselves. And it's from the line of David. You know, way back in Genesis chapter three, when Adam and Eve sinned and what happened? God showed up and he said, what have you done? And of course it came out eventually. And so God pronounces a curse upon mankind. But along with the curse because of their sin, what did God do? He also gave the first promise of the Messiah. In Genesis 3.15, he said, you know, and, and, you know, that you're the seed of the woman. I'll make enmity between the seed of the woman and between the seed of the serpent. But your seed, Eve, will crush the serpent's head. He will crush the serpent's head. And, and so, you know, what's interesting is that when we look throughout our history, because of Adam and Eve's sin, mankind has experienced hardship under Satan's dominion. You know, people look around and they complain and they say, how could God let the world get like this? We do not see all things under his feet, the Bible says. 
We see things under the prince of the power of the air right now. If you want to blame somebody, blame the enemy. Don't blame the Lord, you know? So the idea here is that, you know, we were under that power. And all throughout history, no matter how good or how wonderful man may be at certain times, no man has been able to overthrow that power. And the truth is, God could have left us here just in that, under the prince of the power of the air. But he didn't. He visited us. He promised from the very beginning that he would send a man from the line of David who would break those chains. And now he has. You know, I'm, I'm always amazed when people say, why, why doesn't God intervene more? I always wonder, I say, I wonder why God intervenes at all. You know? Let me ask you a question. You know, some of you are military parents. You know, and, and, and imagine there are probably times if your son or your daughter was overseas in a place that you weren't exactly sure why they were there, you probably wondered, what, it, what might they be giving their life for? Now think of this. You're going to send your son to a place to rescue a people who don't want to be rescued, who are going to spit in his face, rip his beard out, put a crown of thorns upon his head, and then kill him? If you had the choice to say, um, could we have him reassigned somewhere else, what would you do? I already know what the answer is because I know what I would do with my boys and my daughter. I would have them reassigned somewhere else. I would not send them to a God-forsaken place where no one appreciated what was being done and, and they could have cared less that they were there. But that's what God did for us. He sent his son into our world, a place where things were not done the way he wanted them done. Where numerous times we see Jesus going, oh, wicked generation, because things are not done the way that they're supposed to be done. And yet he stayed. And he loved us every step of the way. In the book of John, it says he loved us to the, loved them to the very end. Even Judas, the one who would betray him. And then he died for us. So God sent Jesus to rescue us from that bondage. And this was something to save us from ourselves. And, and this was something that was promised in the Old Testament. For he says in verse 70 that God did this. He has visited us and redeemed us through sending the Messiah from the line of David as, verse 70, he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets, which have been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all that hate us. Did you know that Jesus fulfilled over 300 prophecies from the Old Testament in his birth, in his coming, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, all those things? Over 300 if I asked you to predict just three things about an event that in the future, none of us would get it right, you know? If I asked you to predict eight things, you say, predict eight things, and we punch it into a computer. The computer would come out with a number that said, you know, the, the chance of this happening would be something, something, something to like the 14th power or 23rd power or something crazy like that, you know? You punch in 300 and something, the computer is going gonna, gonna to have a, a blue screen of death, you know? It's going to stop working. It's, not, it's going to say impossible, cannot compute. Because it, it, it can't happen. It's impossible. And yet, that's what God did. He predicted from beginning to end. It says, as, from the holy, as the holy prophets spoke, which have been since the world began. You know, I'm going to take you on a little light rail version of all the prophecies. So let's look at Genesis uh, chapter t- uh, 12. Genesis 12. We already saw the first one in Genesis 3. I'm not going to go over them all. I just want to show you how they span through time. But Genesis 12, we saw that the mother of creation, in the sense of, you know, of all humanity, Eve, the promise is given to her and Adam there. But now God narrows it down here in chapter 12 of Genesis, verse 3. We find the father of the nation of Israel. 
And God says to him, I'm choosing you. The Messiah is going to come through you. Genesis 12, verse 3. The Lord tells Abraham, I will bless them that bless you and curse him that curses you. And in you shall all families of the earth be blessed. So not just the nation of Israel, but here he says, through you, what all the world needs, what all the world's been looking for, it will come through you. The Messiah will come through you. God gets more specific in Genesis 22. I always find it interesting that this is the point where many people lose their faith that God would ask Abraham to sacrifice his son. When you read the story, you realize that A, he's not a little boy, he's a grown man. B, there was no chance he was ever going to get that far, and Abraham believed that. Don't ever believe any of the shows that show you Abraham pining and crying out to God, God, why would you ask me to do this? Abraham believed full well that God would not let him go through with it. And he also trusted that if God did, he'd raise him right back from the dead. There was no anguish in Abraham's part. There was no sense of God. How could you ask someone to kill their own son? He knew God wasn't doing that. He knew God was doing something else. And we see evidence of it here in chapter 22 in verse 8. Now here's Isaac. Remember, he's, he's a grown man. And, and he's carrying the wood because Abraham's old. And he's carrying the wood and he says, Dad, I see the, you know, the wood. We've got all the stuff for the, you know, the, the offering except for the offering. Where's the offering, Dad? And look at how Abraham responds. This is what he knew. And Abraham said, my son, God will provide what? Himself a lamb for a burnt offering. What a weird thing to say. Like, I would never say that. Like, if we were sitting around at a party and, you know, and, and someone looked around and said, hey, where's, the, where's the, the cake? You know, who brought the cake? You know, I wouldn't come and say, I'm going to provide myself a cake, you know? I would never say it like that. I'll say, I'll go get the cake, you know? Or I would say, oh, you know, uncle so-and-so is bringing the cake, right? I wouldn't say uncle so-and-so is, himself is bringing the cake. Why, why would he say that this way? Because he understood there was something deeper going on here. Because what this event, this act is, that's going to take place, it was all to foreshadow about the Messiah. How God would provide himself a lamb. Himself. He would be the lamb. He would be the lamb for our sins that takes away our sins, as John the Baptist declared. Look at 2 Samuel, moving fast-forwarding. There's numerous prophecies we're skipping right now. We wouldn't have time to get into 50 of them, let alone 300. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 and 13. Here God narrows it down even further. Not just from the line of Abraham, but from the line of David. The Lord promises David in 2 Samuel, verses 12 and 13. And when your days, David's days, be fulfilled, and you shall sleep with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you, which shall proceed out of your bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Wait a second. Solomon's kingdom has come and gone. I mean, it's, it's still not in existence today. His descendants are no longer, you know, around in that sense. So what is he talking about here? Well, David knew what he was talking about because look at how David responds in verse 18. After all this is said, it says in verse 18, then went King David in and sat before the Lord. And he said, who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me hitherto, that you have done this for me? And this was yet a small thing in your sight, O Lord God. But you have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. 
He says, is this the manner of man, O Lord God? This isn't something of man's doing. This is something unique you're doing. God promised David here that the Messiah would come from his line, a king who would reign forever and ever and ever. And of course, long after David and Solomon are dead, we turn now to Isaiah 9, where we were in our scripture reading. Isaiah chapter 9. And we see here at the end of Judah's history, when they have a wicked king, King Ahaz, and and God is going to judge them. And he's been speaking of that judgment. And yet, all in that judgment, he foreshadows the fact that someday the Messiah will come. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1. Isaiah 9, verse 1, Nevertheless, the dimness, the gloom, shall not be as such as it was in her vexation. In other words, when God's been disciplining them. When at the first he lightly afflicted the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterward did more grievously afflict her by the way of the sea beyond Jordan in Galilee of the nations. This is the area where Jesus lived and mostly ministered that their darkness, their dimness, their gloom will be removed. For it says in verse 2, the people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. That's why their gloom will be removed. They that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them has the light shined. I'm going to skip down to verse 6 because this is what that light is. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will Ramirez, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play. If you have any spiritual or physical needs, please contact us. We would love to pray for you and assist you in any way we can. You can reach us at 407-523-0800 during our office hours, Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.